Welcome to okay. the Tennis with an Accent uh, radio show. This is Sakev and my partner Matt Semek, and we are reviewing the Wimbledon matches for you, the two finals that have concluded, and uh, there, there were results that many expected, but then uh, there were also results that not were on cards. So on that note, uh, Matt Zemek, why don't you just uh, guide us through uh, how and what happened in the ladies' final at this year's championship? Well, the story begins in 2016. It was a year in which Angelique Kerber not only won two majors, but she defeated Serena Williams in the Australian Open final. They both met again at Wimbledon. And on that day at Wimbledon, uh, Serena Williams played her very, very best tennis. And it's interesting to note that leading up to this Wimbledon final played this past Saturday, that uh, Serena played another German, Julia Gerges, in Thursday's semifinal. And in that semifinal, Serena committed only seven unforced errors. And Gerges, for those who are unfamiliar with her game and her story, Gerges is a very big hitter. Uh, she was she leads the, the WTA, the Women's Tennis Tour, in aces this year. That gives you an idea of her power. So Serena was up against a considerable amount of pace. She was not up against a softball or a knuckleball pitcher, to use something that uh, an audience of Boston Red Sox fans might be able to appreciate. No, she was going up against a fastball pitcher, and yet she made only seven unforced errors in that semifinal. So going into the final, the big question was going to be, would Serena be able to remain as clean with her game. I mean, it's absurdly low to have just seven unforced errors in a high-level major tournament semifinal, but that's how well Serena was playing. The thing is, Kerber, like Gurgis from Germany, is totally unlike Gurgis in terms of playing style, whereas Gurgis loves to play first-strike tennis. Uh, Kerber is a counterpuncher. Um, she is known as that in the women's game. Uh, she likes to absorb the pace that other players bring at her and she redirects, redirects the ball. She play, starts from a defensive position, but then transitions to offense very well. Uh, that was going to be the challenge for Serena. Could Serena hit through Kerber? And then, if not able to at the start of a point, uh, would she able to then hang in rallies when Kerber uh, found her footing and was able to redirect the ball from defensive positions very clearly, very decisively, Kerber won that battle between Serena's first strike uh, and Kerber's defense. Uh, Kerber was indeed able to redirect the ball with angles all day long. One thing she particularly did, Sakib, is that she hit a lot of drop shots to bring Serena to the net. The drop shots weren't always well executed, meaning they were often high or they weren't hit um, just over the net. They were hit close to the service box. Um, you know, where Serena was able to get to those shots. But Kerber realized very early on, uh, after the first few times when she tried those drop shots, Serena was not putting them away. Serena was not finding a severe angle or enough uh, force uh, to hit the ball through the court after she ran down those drop shots. So because Serena was uncomfortable and unsuccessful in finishing points cleanly, when she got toward the net, especially inside the service boxes, uh, Kerber continued to use that tactic, and it had a double effect. One, 
it made Serena run a lot more. And more precisely, it made her run up and down or vertically within the court as opposed to horizontally side to side along the baseline where Serena actually was fairly comfortable. So that pulled Serena out of her patterns. But the other thing it did is that it let Serena know that, oh, I'm struggling at the net and she's going to keep making me go to the net. So that placed a certain degree of pressure on Serena. And as the match continued, Serena actually got worse at the net in handling those points. She misjudged balls uh, multiple times, uh, once at one all, and I think it was 15-30. It might have been 15-all. Uh, early in that game, Serena misjudged the ball at net. If she had made that point, she had a very good chance of breaking Kerber's serve and getting back into the match after losing the first set. Then a few games later, um, with Kerber on serve leading 3-2, uh, Serena misjudged another ball uh, when she was serving to try and keep pace with Kerber in the second set. That second misjudged ball led to Serena getting broken. Kerber took the 4-2 lead, held for 5-2, and this match, uh, which offered the promise of a long three-setter, uh, became a very routine straight-set win. So Kerber's style of play... Uh, held sway the whole match uh, from beginning to end. Kerber broke Serena in the first game and really established and carried the same template uh, throughout, except for a few very brief lapses. And then her specific tactics, beyond her natural playing style, the specific X's and O's that she brought to the match were ones which played into Serena's weaknesses. You know, Serena had been hugging the baseline throughout the first six rounds of the tournament with the slight exception of Kristina Mladenovic in the third round of this tournament, she was the only partial exception. In the first six rounds, no one else threw drop shots at Serena. No one else made her come to the net, challenged her to move vertically within the court. Uh, Kerber really was the, the, the main person who was able to do this, and that's something that Serena had not yet polished off uh, in this return from her uh, childbirth, her return to regular playing on tour. She was still rusty in a few aspects. Her first six opponents really couldn't expose her, but Kerber was exactly the person to do it. Uh, let me ask you another question, not to make excuses because uh, players, both players were in the same boat. The men's semifinal that got carried over and Wimbledon, you know, uh, at least in center court, uh, there is no delay if you have uh, an assigned match there because it has a roof. So this match started approximately a uh, good two hours, if not maybe one hour, 45 minutes after uh, schedule. Do you think uh, both players handled that, or that was a non-factor? I'm going to say it was a non-factor. It is, it is widely agreed upon that Serena was nervous. I don't think that waiting two hours was going to change how nervous she really was. That either was going to be there or it wasn't. And that was more about the moment. It was about Meghan Markle. Uh, being in the in the royal box, it was about a lot of different realities of what was a very emotionally poignant moment. Serena getting back to a Wimbledon final after life-threatening complications related to childbirth, uh, that and other related matters were the real emotional heartstrings that were pulled uh, on Saturday. So I don't think that in the grand scheme of things, two hours uh, had a whole lot to do with it. Now, Sakib, I've talked a lot about Serena Williams and also Angelique Kerber. 
what, what is your sense of the perspective, the larger worldview for Serena as she leaves this match and she leaves this Wimbledon tournament? Uh, I think you had to only look at the how you know gracious she was. Uh, uh, she, she's a gracious champion, but this was a we've seen her. You know, she appreciated the situation more from the nice hug. Uh, you know, in the moment they had at the net after the championship was decided, and then how complimentary she was. Uh, I believe this is uh, Serena Williams has some tennis left for sure because she wants to win more, and this is only the beginning of this another road. But at the same time, I think uh, there was a lot of perspective in terms of how she appreciated this moment. You know, like you said, she had a complicated childbirth, and, uh, you know, after that she came back to the tour, and uh, it, she hasn't had a lot of matches. So she was fully aware this was a, you know, a dream run, you know, uh, coming to Wimbledon as a mother, and she almost won it fine. She fell at the final hurdle. It was a one more match uh, too much. And uh, this is something I want to remind all the listeners, because uh, tennis, you know, just like any sport, it's an individual sport, and in, in this case, momentum uh, is huge, and rhythm is huge. And Serena, lacking match play, just had three matches in in Paris, and then she had to withdraw against Maria Sharapova before hitting the first ball because of a shoulder injury. So this is a two-week tournament. She looked good till semifinals. She was a player to beat. She was looking like, you know, another Serena Williams slam is in the making. And now I wouldn't say to discredit Angelique Kerr, but the Serena was flat, but yeah, I think this happens when you're trying to come back. You are lacking matches, you're lacking rhythm, and this was just one match too many. And as far as a bigger picture, uh, if she can only get back, you know, a few few more weeks of, uh, you know, tournament play, doesn't have to win every tournament she enters before the U.S. Open, but just, you know, she can build upon this, and then she can really elevate her game at the U.S. Open, and uh, that would be, I think, uh, an ideal time for her to rise and, you know, contend for another major. Because this this was good, but, you know, she's only played 10 matches this year on tour, and this, and seven of them have been at Wimbledon. So let me turn this back to you and, uh, you know, some some of the listeners who are tuning in. Uh, talk us, uh, you know, talk to us more about Angelique Kerber. She's the first German uh, winner of the tournament since Steffi Graf. And what does this mean? Uh, and she, this is her third major. What does this enhance her legacy? And, uh, how is she going to be a force for the you know rest of the year and maybe the years to come? Well, the first thing that is worth saying about Kerber is that her progression the past few years has not been very normal. In 2016, as mentioned earlier, she won two major titles, reached a third major final, losing to Serena at Wimbledon, as mentioned earlier. Uh, and so after that big a year, and she also made the uh, Olympic uh, gold medal match in Rio, Brazil, uh, losing to Monica Puig. Uh, it was an incredible year. She made the finals of nearly every significant tournament that year. It was easy to think that after 2016 that Kerber would continue to rise, continue to be a factor, uh, continue to demonstrate her excellence. Uh, but in 2017, the bottom dropped out. Uh, she couldn't do much of anything. Inspiration, spark, the winning edge, whatever term you like to use, Kerber lost it. Uh, she lost in the first round of the French Open. She didn't make a, a deep run in any of the four major tournaments. Uh, she just lost whatever it was she had in 2016. Uh, she went through a coaching change. Uh, so after 2016, she was reduced to rubble. She basically had to start over again. And so entering 2018... 
uh, her career, her trajectory and performance were very much a mystery on the women's tennis tour. Uh, at, in Australia, uh, she quickly rebuilt uh, her, her reputation and her trajectory. She won a warm-up tournament in Sydney before the Australian Open, and then in that Australian Open, she played Simona Halep in one of the best women's tennis matches of 2018, uh, an epic semifinal that ended 9-7 in the third set. It was a terrific match. Uh, and ever since that moment, Kerber hasn't looked back. She's continued to be very solid at the important tournaments, uh, quarterfinals in Indian Wells, um, other deep runs in, in and through the spring, uh, made the quarterfinals at the French Open, and now she has this Wimbledon championship. So uh, it's really rather remarkable to be so good in 2016, so bad in 2017, and then to build everything back right away uh, in 2018. That shows the resolve Angelique Kerber has, to be knocked to the pavement and then get up that quickly, that fully, uh, to become a first-time Wimbledon champion. About Kerber's third major, a few things. First of all, Victoria Azarenka and Petra Kvitova, uh, who have been mainstays on the WTA Tour for the past several years, they have only two major titles. So Kerber has passed both of them. That is something no one in the women's tennis community expected two or three years ago. It was completely out of left field. So that's that's remarkable in its own right for Kerber. The other thing is that tennis is very particular in that once a player wins a second title, um, that usually marks uh, a, a trajectory of continued growth. You know, in, in golf, at least in the past 20, 25 years or so, major tournament golf, there are a lot of one-time wonders. There are a lot of guys who just get hot for one weekend and then they don't replicate their success, and in and in it's re- it's much easier uh, to win one golf major than it is to win one tennis major, and in, and in tennis when you get to two, it, it normally is the case that that muscle memory and that experience, knowing how to pull through tough situations, keeps building uh, th- that that culture and that expectation of success. So to put a, a little more meat on the bone, Sakib, only four active women's tennis players in the open era, so that's 50 years going back to 1968, only four active women's tennis players have only two majors. You know, So usually when you get to two, it usually becomes three. And so Kerber, uh, you know, it, it, it looked after her 2017 that, oh, is, is she ever going to, you know, get back to her winning ways? But now she has really confirmed that, yes, you know, she is another example of tennis players who, once they win a few times, um, you know, they might they might struggle for a period of time, but you really don't want to write off those kinds of players. That third title usually comes uh, for those kinds of competitors. And more importantly, Matt, I think you pointed out some excellent analysis there, but more importantly, she has won her third slam at a third different venue. So if she does win Roland Garros, she will complete a career slam, and nobody would have thought that, that Angelique Kerber is the one who's going to get that, because the you took uh, Petra Kvitova and uh, Vika Zarenka. I believe they have both won one major each twice. So this is something already putting her in a league of her own. Of course, you know, there's Serena Williams and 
you know, Maria Sharapova and Venus Williams, but now Angelique Kerber has won three different majors. That's phenomenal. It is, and you are correct that Azarenka's two major titles both came at the same place, the Australian Open, and uh, Kvitova's two major titles also came at the same place, which is Wimbledon. So, yes, Kerber uh, has managed to win in three different locations, so that, that does speak to her versatility. Uh, it's also very interesting to note, just given this line of analysis that you've uh, helpfully drawn out here, is that if Kerber does win the career slam, at least one championship at all four majors, uh, she won't have the exact trajectory of Maria Sharapova, but the similarity will be that the French Open will wind up being the last stop. Sharapova won the other three majors, the two hardcourt majors, and Wimbledon before she then got the final piece of the puzzle at the French Open. So Kerber... If she gets there, we'll share that similarity with Sharapova. All right, so that was the women's final. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after the commercial break and talk about the men's, men's final between Kevin Anderson and Novak Djokovic. So, Matt, let's talk about the men's final of 2018 Wimbledon that just concluded, and we have a, a four-time winner in Novak Djokovic. And this is an extremely uh, unique place for him because uh, – there's a five-time champion in Borg, and then there's seven-time Sampras, and there was three-time McIntosh. So he pretty much stands alone in the Open Era with only three men who have won more Wimbledon titles than him. So let's talk about his win. Of course, was it that expected when the draw opened up? He's definitely no stranger to be holding these, uh, you know, Grand Slam trophies on the second Sundays. Well, we can clearly see that the semifinal against Rafael Nadal was for the Wimbledon Championship. Not only, not primarily because Federer wasn't there in the top half of the draw, but primarily because it took over six and a half hours for Kevin Anderson to beat John Isner. Um, this is the main point to emphasize about the final, strictly in terms of why Djokovic won it and why he won it so easily. Anderson had 5-3 and 30-15 in the third set serving uh, to try to close out that third set against Isner. Uh, had he been able to finish the job and win that third set, he might have been able to win that match in four sets and a very normal three hours or so. But because Anderson failed and because he had to win that match in over six and a half hours, he had very little left in the tank. He was able to play one really good set, but um, uh, Tumani Cario, uh, a tennis analyst based in the United Kingdom, pointed out that Anderson had to hit seven, 278 serves, 278 in that win over Isner. So that when, you're, when your arm has to throw that many pitches, so to speak, to use a baseball analogy, uh, you're probably going to be worn out, and you're probably not going to be able to fire those bullets uh, with the same consistency. Djokovic walked into a very comfortable and manageable position, some people thought that Djokovic was going to be physically diminished himself after playing uh, what was over a five-hour match against Nadal, but that was spread out over two days. And if you consider all the Masters 1000 tournaments Djokovic has won over the years, that's basically like playing a two-and-a-half-hour Masters quarterfinal on Friday, playing a two-and-a-half-hour Masters semifinal on Saturday, and then playing a, a match on Sunday. So Djokovic or Nadal, whoever had won that, that semifinal, 
was going to enter a major final for, you know, a, which was a very familiar situation. Both have made more than 20 major finals. This is just Anderson's second major final, his first Wimbledon final, and Anderson was had just come off playing nearly 11 total hours of tennis over two matches, one of them against a member of the big three, and then he had to face Djokovic. Uh, all of those circumstances put together uh, pointed to a straight-set Djokovic win, and that's exactly what we got. So now let me ask you this question in a slightly different uh, angle. Is uh, Was Djokovic, if he was not physically compromised, because you said uh, a lot of these matches in the Masters 1000 or the best of three format across the tour, presents these kind of situations on a weekly basis, not only for Djokovic, but many other champions who are crowned on a weekly basis. So how was Djokovic mentally coming in? Because this became all of a sudden his tournament to lose because compared to Anderson, he's such a decorated champion, he's a legend. Uh, and you think he came with a mindset, if he falters, you know, this could be a missed opportunity or he's such a steely uh, nerve, you know, kind of a champion, like who rises to this occasion. Uh, walk us through the mental philosophy of this match, how it started, and it's pretty clear that Novak is a straight set winner here. But how was the mental mindset coming in? Was Anderson uh, not even ready mentally because he was so worn out physically or mental uh, toughness played a part in this three-setter? Well, I think before talking about the match, Sakib, one has to talk about Novak Djokovic entering Wimbledon. Uh, his last match before Wimbledon was a very well-played three-set match against Marin Cilic at the Queen's Club uh, Wimbledon warm-up tournament. Uh, it was a match in which Djokovic won a very close first set uh, and then had uh, a match point on Cilic's serve late in the second set, and then he led Cilic 4-1 in the second set tiebreaker. And at each of those points, uh, it seemed that Djokovic was likely to win, enhanced by the fact that Djokovic had a 14-1 head-to-head record against Cilic going in. But Cilic somehow dug his way out of trouble and managed to win that match in three sets. So going into Wimbledon, you could have said, well, maybe Djokovic's mental game really isn't all there. But then a few things happened. One, Djokovic uh, won a third-round match against Britain's Kyle Edmund. Uh, the center court crowd in England was you know, very much rooting for Edmund. So J- Djokovic was going against the crowd uh, for much of that match, but he pulled through it in four sets. And then, a few days later, he's had Rafael Nadal, 17-time major champion, uh, in a semifinal, which was close and pretty much dead even throughout. And at 7-7, 15-40, serving in the final set, Djokovic was one point away from being broken and having Nadal uh, serving for the match. Uh, 7-7, 40, 15-40 in the final set. That's very familiar, is it not, in Wimbledon history? I recall Roger Federer uh, in the 2009 final against Andy Roddick serving at 8-8-15-40, also having to save two break points on serve. Federer pulled through in that extended fifth set, and he won a Wimbledon title. For all intents and purposes, Djokovic really won that Wimbledon title uh, in 2018 by saving that 7-7-15-40 against Nadal on Saturday. I think that once Djokovic overcame a hurdle as big as Nadal in a five-hour, five-set match, he had absolutely no doubts, none whatsoever, uh, about his ability to handle this match. Uh, Anderson has 
grown by leaps and bounds as a competitor, being able to come from two sets down against Federer in the quarterfinals, that's something that an older, uh, less experienced, uh, less trusting Kevin Anderson never would have done in 2015 or 2016. But this 2018 up-to-date version uh, is, a, is a marvelous competitor. But in, in his case, the body and especially the shoulder uh, being able to, needing to hit all those hard serves just wasn't there. So Djokovic was right where he wanted to be mentally entering this match. Uh, the questions really were a few weeks ago before this tournament began. But once this match started, and, and as soon as Djokovic realized that Anderson was making some fairly routine errors compared to his previous two matches, Djokovic knew exactly what he had to do, and he went in for the quick kill. Yeah, that's uh, definitely how it played out. And uh, like I've said it many times in, in the Tennis with an Accent podcast and in our discussions and Djokovic, you know, a lot of people ask if he'll ever return to his elite levels. And I'm convinced, even if he does not, and this is a proof, uh, his mental tenacity and his, you know, championed heart was in full display against Nadal. He's, I think, the best, you know, neutralizer of crowds. He just diffuses stadiums who root against him. And uh, fine, his, his levels tennis-wise were not there, but his competitive desire and his battle, uh, his ability to battle when down in scoreboard pressure is second to none. And uh, yes, my answer is he can win more majors. He doesn't have to be painting the lines uh, along the same lines like he was doing in 2014 to 2016 period. He's still good enough, and it applies to Roger Federer and often at all. They don't have to play at that level to win majors because, uh, you know, their, their A-minus game is still pretty darn good to succeed at the ATP Tour and, uh, and you know, win these big championships. So that brings us to the finalist. Uh, Kevin Anderson, you briefly spoke about, you know, an older version of Anderson wouldn't be able to deliver, at, uh, you know, at, at these uh, major junctions at Grand Slams. Now, he's appeared in two major finals in the last year. And uh, what is his board for him? Uh, of course, you know, we are not going to predict too much, but how do you see his uh, his upcoming tournaments and with the expectations, and I'm sure he's going to climb up a couple of notches in the ranking. So do you see him to be someone who's going to be emotionally worn out out of this? Or you think he'll be ready, ready come Washington, Canada time to launch an assault uh, for the big swing in, uh, you know, leading up to New York at the U.S. Open? Well, you know, I talked earlier about how Anderson wasn't used to being in a major final and making the physical turnaround, recuperating physically the way Djokovic and Nadal are so used to doing. So that process, that's going to kick in as well for the summer hardcourt season. Uh, I know that Anderson made the final in Washington uh, last summer, but he needs to skip that tournament. And I think if, if he's being realistic about his aspirations uh, at the U.S. Open, he needs to skip Canada as well, and he needs to just play Cincinnati before the U.S. Open. This is a big guy playing a lot of tennis, the wear and tear on his body is considerable. Uh, if he tries to rush back too quickly and he tries to overplay, he's going to be totally worn out at the U.S. Open. And he and his team need to realize that he's defending 1,200 finalist points at that U.S. Open. So he needs to prepare for that tournament more than the tournaments that are leading up to it. The, the, a few other worthwhile things pointing out about Anderson. One is that he went to the University of Illinois and the Labor Cup is going to be in Chicago. So Anderson has set himself up beautifully for that uh, specialized made-for-TV tournament. He's, he's going to take a star turn at that event. 
so he'll want to be at his best for that, you know, in terms of improving and increasing his global profile. He's made a lot of new fans. In fact, he tweeted out a tweet on Sunday after the Wimbledon final, and it got at least 15,000 likes. Uh, by the time people listen to this show, I'm sure that it will have hit uh, well over 20,000 likes. So he has built a, a, a broader, bigger fan base. He's made a, a lot of new admirers. So he now has to think a little bit more long-term. He has to think in terms of the of the big picture. Uh, he got into the ATP Top 5 for the first time ever as a result of making this Wimbledon final. So at the U.S. Open, with all these points he's defending, you know, if he loses early, he's going to shed the points that he gained back. So what this Wimbledon did by putting him into the top five, it basically keeps him in the top ten if he doesn't have a good U.S. Open. I was going to say, I'm going to respectfully, uh, you know, not challenge this, but uh, you think missing Canada is a good move because Canada is still good three weeks away, and I think uh, two weeks away from this and one week on practice code, maybe he should skip Washington. But Canada has a prestigious 1,000, and I don't think Anderson has enough points so, uh, so on the on the goodwill system of ATP, which is a uh, you know seniority level that he cannot skip a mandatory event like Canada. And I don't, I slightly disagree because I think Canada will give him some matches. There's no uh, guarantee that he'll come and start winning matches after a three-week break. So I'll just uh, beg to differ that he. Sh- I think he should play both Canada and since he take a week off before the Open and then go you know fresh and open with you know two weeks under his. Under his belt. Well, that's a perfectly reasonable point. Um, you know, and, and, and of course, it, it, to, to think that Anderson has easy decisions ahead of him, you know, would be misleading. I think you and I can both agree that he now has to juggle and recalibrate the way he looks at tennis. You know, making a second major final, this is something that Tomas Birdik, Joe Wilfred Sanga, Milos Raonic, even Juan Martin Del Potro have not been able to do. All those guys, Kane and Shikori as well. Anderson has made more major finals than all of them. It's really a tremendous achievement, and the, the larger tennis world needs to slowly absorb and digest how impressive it is that Anderson has done this. And one other thing, someone else pointed this out to me during the Wimbledon final. Only one other man that I'm aware of in the open era uh, Andres Jimeno of Spain uh, in 1969 and then 1972 has made each of his first two major finals after turning 30. So that is an extraordinary accomplishment by Kevin Anderson. There might be another example beyond Jimeno, uh, but for sure there aren't many examples of players who have made each of their first two major finals after turning 30. Stan Wawrinka, for example, made his first major final at 28. So he is not uh, an example of that. Anderson is one of those few people who did. So, Sakib, turning this conversation a little bit, having talked about Anderson and having talked about this final, what about the broader view and the broader view specifically with the big three? Um, we've seen Roger Federer come back from injury to win a major. We've seen Rafael Nadal come back numerous times from injury to win a major. And now Novak Djokovic has come back from an injury uh, and several months of doubt and uncertainty uh, to also win a major. So what does this Djokovic championship say, and what does it establish for you uh, it, about this golden era of men's professional tennis? I think uh, you are touching upon something very interesting there by calling the period of uncertainty and doubt, and Novak, just like any great champion, uh, you know, the the situation was asking him very tough questions, and all of us, 
are somewhat, you know, guilty. You know, we change our tone week to week, and that's, I guess, part of when you do analysis on sports. It's so dynamic. Every match presents a new opportunity to 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 do a commentary on something that just unfolded. That being said, uh, I think uh, Djokovic has answered the call in one of the best possible scenarios. If you go back to the Benoit pair loss in California, in uh, sorry, in, in Miami, and then Taro Daniel in California, those were some of his most listless performances. And after that, Andre Agassi and Djokovic, you know, parted ways. Uh, according to ESPN uh, commentary, they still remain friends and they are in touch. But then Djokovic, I think, needed to look for answers. Like if he's going to continue his comeback trail, he needs to be more serious and he needs to be more focused. And and he was very candid today in the post match. I don't. I need to not say any more. And he himself said he doesn't know if this level is good. He doesn't know if this level is bad. The more important thing is the adversity he faced and the narrative, you know, that was surrounding his comeback and his tennis and his belief and, you know, where will he be in Federer's draw and Nadal's draw. He answered the bell emphatically. He won this thing by beating Rafa Nadal, who was playing one of his best Wimbledons in a very, very long time. And to answer this question in a broader sense, yeah, this is now the seventh major in a row. Federer Nadal winning last six and Novak has rejoined the party. The count that was frozen at 12 for two years is now... It's not frozen anymore. It's 13. And I think along with Federer and Nadal, they both, they all three could be co-favorites. And I think that's going to serve well for all of them. Because in the past, either one of them has come into the tournament as an overwhelming favorite every year. So unless something drastic happens in Canada and Cincinnati, like Djokovic or Federer or Nadal, one of these guys run the table, or they all don't win those tournaments, I think three of them, I'm no betting man, but I think, just on the sheer ability of rising to the occasion and winning the Open in the past, I think all three uh, will come there within striking distance. And, you know, of course, draw would be intriguing. But, yeah, this is just another feather in the uh, unbelievable consistency of the big three. And I'll even add uh, Andy Murray there because since 2003, this is the 16th straight Wimbledon that has been won by these four champions. Federer has won eight. Djokovic has uh, four and Nadal and Murray have to reach. So what do you think of that? That's just phenomenal. Like four-man dominance at one tournament like that, it's incredible. It is incredible. And what it also shows and, and, and reminds those of us who follow tennis very closely is that Wimbledon, also the U.S. Open, but especially Wimbledon. Wimbledon's a place where the great players, the greatest of great players, win championships. Uh, you know, every now and then, once in a great while, you'll get a Richard Krychek in 1996. You'll get a, a, a Leighton Hewitt being David Nalbandian in 2002. Once in a great while, you'll get the odd result. But nowhere more than Wimbledon do, do you get the great players figuring things out. And to amplify this achievement for Djokovic, one of the most impressive, underrated aspects of his career, Sakib, is the fact that at Wimbledon, after a really tough setback at Roland Garros, he has been able to bounce back and achieve a shining career triumph. You know, in 2011, he had a max winning streak of over 40 straight matches snapped by Federer in the semifinals. So that was a devastating defeat. Everybody was looking forward to the first uh, Nadal-Djokovic final at Roland Garros in 2011. They had not yet met in a final in Paris at that time. So what does Djokovic do? He beats Nadal in the final of Wimbledon. Three years later, Djokovic played Nadal for the third straight year at Roland Garros. 2012, 2013, 2014, he lost to Nadal in that 2014 final. He wondered if he was ever going to get over the hump at Roland Garros. 
What does he do? He goes to Wimbledon. He beats Federer in a fifth set after saving break point. That match, one under co- then coach Boris Becker, really began to turn his confidence around, and it led to uh, the Pax Djokovic, the, the most dominant period in Djokovic's career, the 2015 season with with a 27 and one record at the major tournaments. It led to the Novak Slam, four straight major tournaments won from 2015 Wimbledon through 2016 at Roland Garros. No one else in the open era except for Rod Laver in 1969 had won four straight men's majors in a row. Federer didn't do it. Nadal didn't do it. Djokovic did. And now we have the comeback from injury, the comeback from the temporarily mishandled coaching situation, the comeback from those listless performances on American hard courts in the spring that you cited. Where did that comeback get completed? Wimbledon. It's where the greatest of great champions uh, figure things out, and it, and it re- reinforces the greatness of this tournament, at least in my eyes. All right, Matt, before we wrap the men's, uh, you know, Wimbledon uh, conversation, let's spend a couple of minutes each on Rafael Nadal and uh, Roger Federer. Uh, what does this mean to Nadal? Because this was probably his best chance in ages to come, you know, and win this tournament where he reached five finals, uh, it seems like a long, long time ago. And last few years, he's been, you know, he's lost to some of these big hitters and Nick Kyrgios, Lukas Rasol, and Gilles Miller. So you think that's an opportunity lost? Rafa is like a uh, – he always maintains a perspective in the press room, but how much does this loss hurt? You know, it hurt. It hurts a lot it, precisely for the reasons that you cited. This was a year in which Nadal, in the first four rounds of the tournament, avoided those huge servers, which normally give him trouble in the first week of Wimbledon when the court is wetter, Slicker, you know, more lush. The, the the grass hasn't been worn away behind the baseline quite as much. In that first week, when the court is slicker and the servers are big, Nadal would get into trouble when he drew one of those big servers. But this year, he did not. That's why he finally got back to the Wimbledon quarterfinals for the first time since 2011. So, having talked about Nadal, I'm going to then turn this back to you. What about Roger Federer? Also, a man who was very, very close uh, to winning a late-stage match. He had a match point, not just a set point that Nadal had. He had a match point in set three against Kevin Anderson in the quarterfinals. Uh, Anderson, as we know, played very bravely and very boldly to take that away from him. But nevertheless, Federer was the victim of that loss. So what does Federer take away from this Wimbledon? Uh, how does he approach the coming summer hardcourt season and the rest of 2018? What, if anything, changes in his outlook? Uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting takeaway, isn't it? Because uh, even though I think uh, we pointed out in one of the other podcasts that Federer in his illustrious career has only lost three times when he's up two sets to love up at a major, and that record is a very ridiculous 262 to three, and those three losses out of those three, two have occurred at Wimbledon. But what we also know about Federer, he may not be as mentally... Uh, a gritty customer or a, or a warrior like uh, Rafael Nadal or Novak Djokovic. But what he does better than anyone are two things. He's a visionary. He plans better than most people. That's why he's still a force at, you know, a few weeks away from his 37th birthday. And more importantly than anyone I've seen in the game, including people like Sampras, Agassi, or, you know, Becker and co., Federer is the best to compartmentalize, you know, heartbreaking, tough losses. You remember 2011 U.S. Open? against Djokovic, Djokovic, second year in a row beats Federer with a, you know, match points down. He hits a 
pretty much close-eyed forehand, and Federer, you know what, he's he's a grumpy man in uh, in the press conference, but he rebuilds, he focuses, he goes back to Australia to play Davis Cup same weekend, wins two matches of grass, and then gets on a spiral. He wins indoor tournaments, he plays a great Australian Open for 2012, wins the Clay Masters, and comes back to number one for the first time in more than three years. So he's done it before. And recently, you know, we all know last year he came close to finishing the year as number one, and him and Nadal have traded positions. So to answer your question, Federer definitely, this is a loss that will hurt, but this can also be a blessing in disguise that he went home four days early. He probably talked to his trainer, his team, and he can map out a plan if he doesn't go to Toronto. He's someone who plays better when he plays less. So he can go back to Cincinnati at one he's won seven times. The conditions suit him there. If he wins that, you know, he's in, in, in a great position to, you know, be one of the favorites at the U.S. Open. So having, having discussed the big three uh, and having discussed Kevin Anderson and having discussed this Wimbledon, uh, our focus now shifts not away from grass because there is one more grass tournament to deal with this summer, and it's a tournament very close to Lowell, Massachusetts, in Newport, Rhode Island, the Campbell Soup Hall of Fame Championships. Sakib, why don't you tell our audience what you're going to be doing there? Yeah, we have secured, uh, like Matt said, media credentials. I'll be on site uh, a few days next week, and uh, hopefully we'll be bringing in some interesting coverage from there, talking to some of the men who are competing in America's only remaining grass court tournament. If you like to watch live tennis, that's probably a great venue. It's not too far from Lowell. I think it's a 75-minute drive. You can go check out world-class tennis not too far away from home. And Tennis and Accent will be bringing you small tidbits with some articles uh, right from Newport. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, let me uh, uh, welcome Joseph Nardone from New York, uh, who's our NBA uh, analyst for today. He's a uh, columnist for the Clutchpoint app website which can be found at clutchpoints.com. Joe has written for numerous publications covering college and pro basketball. He's also the co-host of the Off the Wall Basketball Podcast with Jared Mintz. Uh, welcome, Joe. Looking forward to this chat. Oh, appreciate you having me on. Can't wait to get started. So since you know we are in, in the Boston market and Celtics are always a big talking point here, uh, depending on you know how the free agency has gone and uh, what their roster is, uh, just walk us through, uh, you know, uh, how the Celtics stand right now. They have some key players who will be coming back from injury, and who are they targeting uh, in this offseason? Is Marcus Smart one of them, and is, a smart, is it a smart move? Um, well, the Marcus Smart deal. So right now the Celtics are at $112 million in committed salary for next season. The uh, the salary cap, uh, the luxury line, is at $123.7 million for next year. So basically the Marcus Smart deal, as Danny Age has been been bringing up, is he said he'll claim he'll match any offer, um, but he'll probably go up to the twelve million dollar mark. The Kings have been rumored to inter- to be interested in giving him fifteen million dollars a year, and if they're to offer fifteen, I'm not too sure if Boston would match because they don't really want to go over the uh, the the luxury tax. And and, and mm. because in reality, not just what Mark is smart, but free agents in general, they they really only have eleven million dollars to play with. 11.4 to be technical if they don't want to cross the luxury tax. So it really puts them in a tough spot. At $12 million, sure, you go over the luxury tax to, to get Marcus Smart. It doesn't put you that much over. Um, but it, it'll it'll put the Boston in the spot to not be able to pick any other free agents up unless they want to go way past the threshold and then play have the ownership pay a, a pretty steep penalty in that regard. 
Uh, okay, absolutely. And in this, you know, day and age of the mobile NBA market, uh, you think is this move like something for a long term in mind, or you never know with these kind of moves to begin with? Um, it's a little bit of both, right? Because when you're playing with like, because I feel like here's where Boston Boston's roster is excellent. It's very young. It's dynamic. It's deep. They have, I mean, they've been this way for a few years now. Where Danny Ainge has so many great assets, they could he, he could package at a later point if he wants a more proven star. But I feel like they already have some like that, like not proven, but guys that are really growing that role, like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown's emerged as a really good player, and so on and so forth. Where they, I think Boston's always looking at the long pick at the long view, and then there's always that deal with the luxury tax line where. If you start exceeding it and then you go over it for three straight years, it becomes a huge, huge issue where the ownership's paying just a a ton ton of money. And I think that's part of the thing. Like they really like Marcus Smart. He's the fer- perfect fit for this team. And he's not really replaceable as deep as Boston is. Like Terry Rozier can't guard like Marcus. There's nobody like a Marcus Smart. Jalen Brown's close to it, but they play separate positions, guard different guys. Uh Mark Smart's a little more proven, but at that point, it's kind of one of those deals where you kind of just got to let him walk because you're already so deep. You don't need to push the issue just for one guy. And suppose if we uh, do miss, uh, you know, miss out on him, you think uh, with the cu- current rosters throughout the Eastern Conference, uh, the Celtics, the team to beat with, of course, now LeBron has, you know, moved to the West Coast. Uh, how do you see uh, that landscape on the East Coast with the Celtics? It's it's Boston and Philly, and I think Boston is is still the better team. Like. You, People get a lot like in the free agency's fun and it's sexy and it's it's great to follow, but we always forget about in, internal franchise development where guys like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Terry Rozier are going to get better season over season. Same thing with the Sixers with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and so forth. The other thing is Boston's getting Gordon Hayward again. Like didn't have he he played for a little bit of one game last season. He got hurt. He's returning to the fold. Kyrie Irving obviously missed the end of last season, the playoff run. He's returning to the fold. And then whatever other moves Danny Age might feel like he has to make. But, yeah, I think it's really Boston's division, like, by a pretty good measure. And then it's Philadelphia, a relatively close second. And then there's a pretty, I don't want to say a steep drop, but there's going to be a drop after that because Toronto's going through this weird phase where it looks like they're on the market to trade everybody, and they just changed head coaches. All right, so let's address the big news, which is now almost, uh, what, a week old. Uh, LeBron's a Laker. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, analysts, I'm sure, like uh, even on your podcast, that was a projected move uh, of all the markets. You know, that that seemed the likely candidates. Now he's in LA. Uh, how does that uh, change the landscape of the Western Conference? And uh, as an NBA fan and as an NBA analyst, do you like that move? Um, as an as both a fan and an analyst, I like it because I know, in theory, to beat the Warriors, he would have been better served going to Boston or Philly. Um, but now what this does is it provides another team that's interesting, right? Now it's Boston, Philly, Houston, Golden State, and the Lakers, and other teams, obviously. So it adds a whole new team to the mix that are interesting. As far as how it impacts the Western Conference, it gives us another enjoyable team to watch. It's weird how they surround, like, the immediate impact afterward, ending Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, and a couple other guys, where it's basically they just got every player that LeBron James ever hated and put them on one team. Um, So I thought that was interesting. He's surrounded by non-shooters, which is not traditionally how you build around LeBron James' team. But I think it does put – the Lakers are obviously going to be a playoff team. You could put LeBron on almost any team in the history of the NBA and make them that much better. 
Um, but yeah, like they, they become like the fourth or fifth best team probably in the Western Conference, which is insane considering where they were just a season ago. And, uh, you know, sticking at LeBron, with LeBron, he's still a very young 33-year-old. I mean, his body, even though has seen, you know, I think was close to 15th season in the NBA, he's still, I think, easily the best player in the league. And uh, and I think it's pretty, uh, uh, it's a remarkable turn in his career because in the East, he was always, what he played like eight or nine finals in a row. And now he's putting everything mm-hmm. on the line if the Kawhi Leonard uh, trade doesn't materialize or uh, he, they are not going to be the favorites in the West. And that's that's a bold move considering you know, how these guys are always validating legacies and, you know, they're talking about the, the GOAT discussion. So he's really taking the Warriors and even the Rockets head on. I mean, there's no guarantee that he's going to even be in the Western final if they don't get Leonard. Oh, you're totally right. I think this move isn't – so he did the three years plus one player option. I, I'm guessing here I don't have any, like, inside information that this year they he knew he was going there. It was going to be a wash. They signed a bunch of these veterans that they brought in, like Rondo – and, and the other guys on a one-year deal. I think that was just to try to help appease, make the first year a playoff-level team, let guys like Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, and, and Kyle Kuzma develop, see how much they develop. And then next year, next offseason, I think that's when we're going to see the, the big moves the Lakers, Rob Palenka, Magic Johnson, are going to actually try to do to surround uh, LeBron James with you know higher-quality players where they can, can compete with Houston and Golden State. Because right now, they're not even close to doing that. I, 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 I'm guessing the plan here is see Alonzo Ball, Kuzma, Brandon Ingram, Ingram develop, make it to the playoffs, get Lakers fans excited, and then go, head into next offseason, see if that this is one of those deals where they're going to have to trade one of those young pieces or if they're going to, if they're developing in a way where they could keep them and they'll be more equipped to win the following year because I think there's a, de- a better chance Golden State looks far different in even a year from now. Chris Paul, a year from now, is going to look far different. Like the season after the next one, Chris Paul is going to be far different. It, it's it's going to be a better, a more appropriate landscape for the Lakers to attack free agency the, the next offseason, not this one. And uh, what's the timeline looking for Kawhi Leonard? Where he's going to end up? Is he going to be a Spur? What, what's, what's going on there with Popovich and, uh, you know, in Spur Nation? This has been one of the, it's one overshadowed a bit because of a lot of LeBron James stuff, but it's the craziest stuff going on where we have the guy that no, nobody ever heard talk and Kawhi Leonard rebelling against, you know, notably one of the most notable uh, classiest franchises in all sports. And he just doesn't want to be there for whatever the reason there's murmurs and rumors of whatever's happening, but none of them are actually like reported on factual information. He's definitely not going to be there. Uh, Greg Popovich, there's been a couple report of him on record stating um, that if they're going to trade him, he wants to trade uh, Kawhi somewhere where that he's happy going to. And then there's this whole other thing where supposedly Leonard doesn't want to play with LeBron James or Leonard doesn't want to do this. And Leonard doesn't want to do that. We don't know that for sure. This is all leaks and it's probably coming from his agent to try to keep him away from going from a market or a team that's not close to winning. Um, I do think he's going to be moved traded well before the season though, because if he doesn't want to be there, there's no reason for San Antonio to try to make it happen. No reason to force it. San Antonio will have a couple more. They, have, I mean, they still have a few more months to see if they could work him back into the fold, like they did a little Marcus Aldridge when Lamarcus Aldridge was unhappy. But it does. There's no signs pointing to that happening. Okay, so that was some uh, valuable insight, Joseph. And hopefully, you know, we'll have you back on the show. Thanks for taking time out, and uh, yeah, uh, hopefully, talk to you soon.